Hello, and welcome from the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn in Ontario, Canada. Join us this week as Pastor John Blackman shares from the book of 1 Corinthians. Cindy, is it just me, or we should all probably, you know, be a little relieved when the guy leading uh, catechism asks if anybody practiced this this week, and then the question's about adultery. So it's probably good that nobody practiced that this week, and, and uh, we were all... Uh, Amateurs. Anyway, <laughs> thank you for filling in, Stephen. Um, you can throw that first slide up there, Cindy. In case you uh, hadn't noticed, uh, there's a little bit of a revolution underway in the auto industry, and you might not be all that interested in electric cars or even think they're viable or think that that's anything that uh, is of interest to you. Well, uh, it seems that the people that make cars are very interested in them, and you, we would say there's a big revolution on right now, in the auto industry, right? That's really changing things quickly. Um, I remember going through a similar one when I was at the end of my high school years. So I finished high school in, in 1980, and I remember we used to have our gas prices in gallons. And the gas price had never gone over a dollar a gallon. And there was a minority conservative government for a little while, and they brought in a new tax that suddenly there was three digits on the signs at the gas pumps. And literally, if you look back in history, that's considered why there was a no-confidence vote and Joe Clark was only the prime minister for about six months and his government was voted out because people were outraged that they were paying a dollar. And then they switched it to liters, which hid the price because <laughs> none of us knew how much we were paying for gas uh, soon after that. But uh, in the year 1979 to 1980, gas went up 39%. 39%, so that's a pretty big, steep uh, hit to inflation in the price of gas. Well, why, is, why do I remember that? Because if you think about it, I'm 17, 18 years old, and I wasn't buying my first car, but many of my friends were. I was just a starving student back then. Some of my buddies were buying their first cars. And some unfortunate older gentlemen did things in 1973 like buy a beauty Chrysler New Yorker. They were often the largest car on the road, and they would have paid a lot of money for a loaded Chrysler New Yorker. I looked up some of the specs, so you think about this. In 73, they're buying this car. This car was almost six meters long. Uh, it uh, was two meters wide. It had a, a two-meter, oh, no, it uh, basically um, 124 inches between the center of the, like, 10 feet between the hubcaps on this car. That's how big it was. But here's the really relevant thing. 10 miles per gallon. Now, for you metric folk, because uh, that doesn't, still doesn't make any sense to me, this, I'm still a miles per gallon guy, but it would be 24 liters of gas to get you 100 kilometers. So what does that look like for some, some of you drivers? Just imagine I said, hey, hey, Andrew, what do you say you come by in the New Yorker <laughs> And we'll go to just to the Beaverton. Like, let's go for a drive. And we'll just go up to Beaverton to the Tim Hortons and have a coffee and come back. It's not that far. That's still within our school zone, right? If you didn't realize that, Beaverton. There and back, 40 bucks. If you went to Aurelia and back, 100 kilometers, $80 by today's prices. So what did that mean for my buddies that were buying cars? You could buy a lot of car for 600 bucks in 1980. Because all of these people that spent all of this money on these giant, they called them land yachts, 
And they figured in four or five years, six years, I'll trade it in on something else. They suddenly weren't worth anything because the situation had changed so much that nobody wanted these cars. They, they wanted an economy car, which got 30 miles per gallon, was considered awesome. Now, my dad, who was always like Mr. Mileage, he was a mileage fanatic long before he needed to be, uh, he never would have imagined that 35, 40 years later, cars, every car would get like 40 miles per gallon. Many cars would get 60 miles per gallon. Even pickup trucks got now get like three times the mileage that that car got back then. Now you think about the fact that, you know, maybe you're going to buy a new car right now. Maybe you're in that position where you're thinking of buying the car of your dreams and you got your eye on some beautiful SUV in your neighbor's driveway. You'd have to kind of pause right now, I would think. I hope I'm not hurting Ray's livelihood here. But you'd have to start thinking, I don't know if I want to spend that much money on something because if I've been thinking about this. I don't really know what's going to be going on in five years from now. How radically things have changed. Is a brand new car right now in five years going to be like a 73 New Yorker? I don't know. Well, what has all this got to do with the resurrection? You may be wondering. You're going to see by the time we get to it, but a lot of times, again, we're focused on, you know, how is our body different? You know, like what will it look like and how will I feel and all of that? The passage we're going to read is, is really interested in that. It's, it asks, answers some of those questions for us. But what does your body run on? How is it energized in the new world? That's a big part of the question. You're going to need to think about two concepts. One is called continuity, and one is called discontinuity. How are our new bodies after the resurrection different? How are they the same? Um, with all that in mind, let's read our passage. It's our, our third week in this long, uh, big passage in... Uh, in Corinthians, and uh, we are going to um, jump right in. Verse 35. But someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? What a foolish question. Um, you always love teachers that do that. What a foolish question. Put your hand down. Paul says, what a foolish question. When you put a seed into the ground... It doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put into the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you're planting. Then God gives it a new body. Uh, then God gives it the new body he wants it to have. Just let me pause there. You have to realize um, we are... Um, unbelievably influenced by a worldview that just says this is all there is in the world. The stuff you can feel, touch, taste. Um, that's called imminent. Whatever's here, that's all there is. Uh, when in reality, there's the idea of transcendence. <laughs> there's a God outside of the physical reality that we live in who, in the biblical understanding, and I hope your understanding as a Christian, he interferes in this material world occasionally. In big ways, and always in that he holds it all together. So when Paul's talking about, you know, a seed going in the ground and God gives it a new body, we think, oh, Paul, that's just outdated biology. Um, we know how it all works. We can understand cells and all of those things. Paul's using a picture here that 
It's God that makes that grow, and it comes out from his worldview, all right? Then God gives it the new body. He wants it to have a different plant grows from each kind of seed. Similarly, there are different kinds of flesh, one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are also bodies in the heavens and bodies on the earth. The glory of the heavenly bodies, he's now talking about stars and planets and all of that, is different from the glory of earthly bodies. The sun has one kind of glory, while the moon and stars each have another kind. And even the stars differ from each other in their glory. It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They're buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They're buried as natural human bodies, or your translation might say natural bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. The scripture tells us, the first Adam became a living person, but the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. What comes first is the natural body, then the spiritual body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are like the earthly man, and heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we are now like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. Just gonna, excuse me for a second. Just reading that far this morning uh, to the end of verse 49. We're going to finish this chapter next week. So this passage is really kind of getting to the nitty-gritty of the questions that we're... <sighs> We all have personally about the nature of our bodies after we die, and, and they're raised. It doesn't answer all the questions, but it, it, this passage actually provides more information than you're going to find pretty much anywhere else in Scripture. But the two important questions are answered that you need to grasp, and you need to grasp the message of seeds that you heard about and, and source. Biblical scholars, like I say, talk about continuity and discontinuity. I think a lot of the excitement about resurrection hope in our, in our minds and in our hearts often uh, lies in the ways that the new body is different. That's what's kind of exciting for us. But if you really think about it, that's also where some of our fears are, that our bodies are different. But it's like, well, how different are they? Um, I think that the biggest mistake that people make about the resurrection hope uh, if not that it's a mistake, uh, just that they've kind of gotten carried away with imaginary ideas. It, it, these kind of, a lot of these ideas cause us to underappreciate the continuity, how our bodies are similar to the bodies that we're familiar with in this world. And uh, we also kind of underappreciate uh, or we end up speculating too much on how they're different. And Paul faced something that Christians face all the time regarding their beliefs about such things, when people say, well, how is this possible? How has this really worked out? What does it really look like? Those are the questions that they're, Paul's kind of answering here. How does that body come back to life? Now, think about Paul's metaphor. He's not saying that your body is literally a seed, 
Um, but in first, central, first century agriculture, what, what does a planter observe? What does a farmer observe? What does a gardener observe? In, in the first century, they took this tiny little thing that just looks like nothing, looks like a pebble, and buries it. It's very, it's very much like a little metaphor, a little idea of a dead body being buried. And it lays there in the darkness and the moisture, and then this miracle happens, where from that seed, this thing comes up, and it's from that seed, but it doesn't look anything like it, does it? Because as Paul said, you know, it becomes, out of that dirt comes a, a tree or a shaft of wheat or flowers or vegetable. And Paul says, God gives it a new body. That's, that's important for us to understand about the natures of our new bodies in the resurrection, that it's something that God gives us. It's not just, uh, like I say, our bodies aren't just a seed. You can't just go and bury a dead body somewhere and wait to see what's going to come up out of the ground like it's a corn, a seed of corn or something like that. God gives it. He's in control of it all. Did you notice also in Paul's metaphor that a different plant grows from each kind of seed? Now, we want to be careful and not stretch our metaphor too much, but Paul's definitely seeming to imply that our future bodies, uh, I've already talked about the fact that they're similar but different from the body that we have now. But he's also kind of pointing out that our bodies will also be somehow different from everybody else's bodies. They'll still be identifiable as, a, as an individual. They, they won't be all the same. And, and that caused me to think this week, you know, we have a lot of, uh, again, this is where imagination creeps in. And, and we have some really misguided ideas about the next life that are just based on imaginary things that we've grown up kind of accepting and never really thought about. So I thought about these differences gender, racial, and even sizes of bodies. Uh, I have a friend that we'll call Tom, uh, because that's his name, and uh, the average height in Tom's family for the last four generations is six feet nine inches. And Tom's seven feet tall, he's a couple years older than me, and he has two sons, the age of my older two daughters, that are now seven foot two and six foot 11. So Tom's the tallest guy I know, and, uh, you know, I thought, I think about, you know, when I think about myself in the next life, after the resurrection, I tend to think of myself as kind of the size I am now, because it's already, but is Tommy going to still tower over me in the next life? Where did I get the idea that there's going to be this uniform, ideal height, and we're all going to be the same height? I mean, if you, if you think, oh, I've always hated how tall I was, or how short I am. I hope it's not the same as it is now. Like that, that's the funny thing. We, we know that, that somehow we do have a, bit, a bit of a foggy understanding that like, you know, my father who passed away a few years ago, uh, I am confident that my dad had faith in Christ that I'm going to see him again. And somehow I kind of feel like I'm going to recognize him when I see him. But I tend to think he's going to look as old as he was when I was a kid and he was my dad. I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to recognize him. So we... Th- we think, like, I'm going to somehow be recognizable. Have you ever thought, I hope the recognizable traits are the ones I would want to be the recognizable traits I have in the next life and not the ones I don't want, you know, the things that I always was embarrassed about in this life? We, we have some pretty foggy ideas about that. But this picture tells us, despite the change, we're going to be unique. And where do we get the idea there's all this uniform size? Well, that's a less threatening one. The other one is gender, male and female. We're men and women in this world. 
It turns out, I, I think I'm confident from Scripture that we are in the next world as well. In Matthew 22, there's this really uh, strange story. Matthew chapter 22. That same day, Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there's no resurrection from the dead. They pose this question. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies without children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose that were, there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children, so his brother married the widow. But the second brother also died, and the brother married her. This continued with all seven of them. Last of all, the woman also died. So tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. If it was me, I would say, whatever you do, skip her dish at the church potluck. <laughs> you know, you don't want to eat her food. However, that's not what Jesus said, but that's what I would have said. That's what I would have said. Jesus replied, your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures. Jesus, our Savior, believed scripture clearly taught that there are resurrected bodies in the new life. Okay? And so first thing we can get there. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. For when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. Now, that's where a lot of people get crazy ideas. Oh, we're going to be like the angels in heaven, and then they have all these bizarre ideas of what angels are like, so we're going to have wings, and we're going to be flying around, and all that. No, he's just saying in, 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 as far as a husband and wife in a marriage covenant, angels aren't in a marriage covenant, and Jesus is saying we'll be like them in that way. But now, as to whether there will be a resurrection of the dead, haven't you ever read about this in the scriptures? Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said, I am the God. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead. When the crowds heard him, they were astounded at his teaching. So what does that reveal? I've already pointed out Jesus believes in a resurrection. He believes that in the resurrection, people retain their essential identities. See, because God's still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the new life, they're still Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's that continuity, even though they have a new, they're still the same essential person. Uh, he said they're no longer married, but he never said they're no longer male and female. So what does that tell us? Maleness and femaleness, though those are just as damaged by the fall as anything else, they're an essential part of who we really are. They're not just some kind of temporary role that we have in this life and then in heaven. That's all gone. So what, what does that say? Well, we should uh, have great respect for maleness and femaleness. It's a gift of God. It's his intention for people. I don't think, I think whenever there's kind of an unfairness or an inequality between those two in, in some way that's outside of the bounds of Scripture, we should not, these are people. These are humans, male and female. He created them. It's essential to who we are. How about race? Some of us have, again, a childhood, lame Maybe it's from what we've pictured or whatever, idea that we're all somehow one race in the new world. Yet John's revelation and visions regularly talk about all nations in his visions of the afterlife. An example of that is in Revelation chapter 7. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number 
from every nation. This is a vision. Are they all wearing soccer jerseys from different nations and that's how he knows what nation they're from? How, how does he know that in a vision? From every nation, from all tribes and peoples, plural, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. A good little residual racism tester for you is to answer the question in your mind, what racial characteristics will people have in this new earth? What language will they speak? You know, I probably suspect if, you're, if I'm a white, Anglo, male, Canadian, I tend to think everybody in the next life is going to look like me. Where does that come from? Or what language are we going to speak? Have you ever thought about that, all different languages? I mean, obviously, somehow we're going to understand them all. I know there's going to be confusion and chaos, but what language are we going to speak? Those of you, unlike me, that can speak more than one language, which one do you think you're going to be using in heaven? I don't know. I hope the English is a working one, because that's the only one I've got. But does that matter? Well, I think that it should enable us to respect and value differences uh, and uh, diversity is God seems to love creating things with great diversity. And he called it all good. Though he created one man, one woman, obviously he had within them the potential to create all of the diversity in the offspring that would go on for centuries. It's terrible when anybody is, uh, suffers prejudice against them as a result of a gift of God of diversity in the way they look. Will that be gone in the new life? Apparently not. That still leaves lots of questions for us, but it's definitely something that we often don't think about. How about beauty? You know, uh, I'll get to that maybe in another. I'm going to pick up on that on glory. Let's take a look at verse 39. I like to think of verse 39 as talking about fit when I read this verse. But not fitness, but fit. This is the other blind spot we have. This whole chapter and discussion, I've hinted at it already. It's fixated on what's different or the same with our own physical bodies that we can touch and all of this kind of thing and continuity and discontinuity. That applies to the world we live in as well. You know, we have this English expression, like a fish out of water. We use that expression when you're suddenly thrown into a radically different situation or challenge than you've ever faced before. Maybe your work kind of requires you to move internationally or you become a missionary. We call it um, culture shock, but we could describe culture shock as like being a fish out of water. Sometimes a huge challenge comes along. Um, and we're suddenly in a situation that just we weren't prepared for. And for a little while till we figure it out, we feel like a fish out of water. Well, that's an expression that can help us grasp what Paul's hinting at in verse 39 when he talks about these different kinds of flesh and different animals. He's not really trying to teach us about zoology. He's trying to teach us about eschatology, the, the, the next life and where it's all going. And... Uh, Verse 40 and 41 expand that with this incredible amount of diversity. When we read that, that these different heavenly bodies have a different glory, we can kind of misunderstand that and, and think that it's in the sense of worth. Like one planet's more glorious or of greater worth than another one in some kind of pecking order. But the emphasis is really on the word different. 
all these different bodies that God's created are different. They're all glorious, but they're gloriously different, or they're differently glorious. Um, and verse 42 uh, starts that verse with, and so it is in some translations. Now Paul's going to draw on everything he's been saying so far about the discontinuity side of our new bodies. Um, that's what he's going to talk about now. He says, our planted dead bodies will grow one type of body, the one God has willed for it. So now in the new earth, we'll be like a fish in water. Without this new body, we wouldn't. But because of this resurrection, when the whole world is remade, we'll be like a fish in water. That's what I mean by this idea of fit. And... Uh, you know, a lot of times the emphasis on these new bodies seems to be mostly upgrades, but there, there are different glorious aspects that are needed because there's different glorious aspects of a new heaven and new earth as well. When Paul uses language like natural bodies and spiritual bodies, don't get distracted by those words and think, well, a natural body, that's when I can hug and hit and, you know, cross-check in a hockey game and that can feel pain, but I'm going to have a spiritual body someday. And we tend to think, semi-transparent, the invisible man, or floating around, and, and uh, things being able to, like, we tend to think more like ghosts when we hear the word spiritual bodies. C.S. Lewis wrote a great classic. Stephen is more the C.S. Lewis scholar, I think, in our church family. But one of his great books is called The Great Divorce. And in his book, The Great Divorce, Lewis kind of has this imaginary scenario, I remember reading, where people are just outside the gates of heaven in the new earth, but they're still in an untransformed body. And the people are unhappy, but they're not unhappy because they're not transformed. They're unhappy because it's like the grass looks like the nicest grass they've ever seen, but it hurts their feet. <laughs> Just standing on their feet, uh, standing on the grass hurts their feet because they're in the wrong kind of body now for the new environment. We're going to be transformed. We're going to have a new body that fits. It's going to be a natural body, but when Paul says spiritual bodies, he means a real one. Verse 45, I'm going I'm to reread it uh, for sure. Verse 45 says, the scriptures tell us the first man, Adam, became a living person. But the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. Now, that's a different emphasis on how these two men got started. There wasn't really a time where Jesus became a living person. Adam became a living person. Uh, we can talk about the incarnation as something different in Jesus' experience, but as far as becoming a living person, Adam, Paul goes on to describe, we, we know our murky language from Genesis where it's pictured as God taking the ground of the earth and forming a man out of the mud and then animating him, breathing his life into him, and man becomes a living being required that life-giving power from God to even come alive in the first place. Jesus is a life-giving spirit, animated from within. This is where we're getting on the idea of in the, in the new world of us being energized by a different kind of power, that energy source. In Genesis, Adam becomes a living being, but Jesus is a life-giving spirit. What does this new body run on? Where does that energy come from? Jesus is that life-giving source. That's why it was so important in the last two weeks to acknowledge the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. 
and he lives and reigns from the right hand of the throne of God. It is that life-giving spirit for our hope in the future. He was called the first fruits, right? The first of many. We all start out, verse 46 says, with a natural body, and someday through Christ we receive body 2.0. One made from the dust of the earth, one made by the man from heaven. Verse 47, whereas Christ, the new man, came from heaven. He appeared on the scene in a body, but he also left in one. Earthly people. Verse 48, I'm assuming that includes probably everyone in this room, unless you're a real sci-fi fan. We're all earthly people. We're like the earthly man. And heavenly people are like the new man. Right now, verse 49, we're very Adamic. We're very Adamic. We're very much like Adam. Then... In the next life, we will more fully bear Christ's likeness. And again, we'll have to because we'll be right for the environment and the conditions we live in then. So Adam and Christ are pictured in this contrast. They're both what we call, we have a word for it called progenitors. Progenitors. They're, they're, they're like the first. They're the one from whom it all, it all comes from. Well, well, now you start realizing when Jesus is called a new Adam, that he's the progenitor of an entirely new way to be human. An entirely new way to be human. It's incredible. So we can add that to all the different names we use to describe our Savior. The beginning, the great ancestor of a new kind of human, resurrected humankind. Man 1.0 brought death. Man 2.0 brings life. Jesus really is the start of something radically new. I'm going to read verse 49 in about five different translations, then I'm going to explain why I'm doing this. You'll probably pick it up when you hear the words I emphasize. So here's the New Living Translation. Just as we are now like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. NIV, and just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. English Standard Version, just as we have borne the image of man of dust, image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Um, Young's Literal Translation, and according as we did bear the image of the earthly, we shall bear also the image of the heavenly. And uh, Moffat's translation from about almost 100 years ago, thus, as we have borne the likeness of material man, so we are to bear the likeness of the heavenly man. Why did I read all those different translations and emphasize it in a way? Because we're meant to pick up on the inevitability of this. It will happen. We can be sure of this in Christ. It's going to happen. It has to happen, and it will happen. What's the point of that? I don't want you to get discouraged about your growth, your change, your transformation in a, in a really toxic way. You know, do, do you spend a lot of time pretending that you're more transformed to the likeness of Christ than you really are? Don't most of us have a nagging feeling that even on our best days, we're not at all as sanctified as other people think we are? When it comes to spiritual growth and change and learning to walk in his steps, as Peter calls it, do you occasionally just kind of consider giving up or despair that you will ever, it will, or you will ever come together? So here's a statement. All those translations mashed together. 
we will someday be like, so shall we bear. We shall also bear. We are to bear the likeness of the heavenly man. We're, we're painfully aware, aren't we, of how uh, like that first Adam we are? I mean, we got tangible proof all around us in the news, in the mirror. This future likeness is just as real. We shall, we will. It's an act of God. The prototype's already been revealed. God's already done it once. He's going to do it again and again and again for many, many faithful followers. Our future bodies, in a very real way, will be a new kind of human. It'll be appropriately transformed. It will be like and unlike anything we've ever known at the same time. There will be differences from one person to the next in all the glorious diversity that God has been known to use and create. Will they be beautiful? Will they be beautiful? Is that even a dumb question? Is that a vain question? Well, they're going to be beautiful according to the definition of, God, of a God whose ways are perfect. Um, since our bodies will be operating on the pure fuel of God's Holy Spirit, we'll share his perspective. We'll share his eye. You know, we have that expression that beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. Uh, that's the expression that all of us regular looking people always use to make ourselves feel better. Uh, it will be in the eye of the beholder. God will be the beholder. We'll be beheld. We'll be beautiful in his eyes and since we'll be transformed and sanctified to the max, we'll consider everybody else that we look at as beautiful. We won't, I don't know if they have mirrors in heaven, but if we look at one, we're not going to be discouraged by what we see. We'll finally even fit and be satisfied with ourselves in the next life. We won't be polluted by a misguided understanding of beauty. Remember how John put all of this in 1 John? He said, dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I don't have time to unpack that passage. It's a real heavy. But when John says we will be like him, he doesn't mean equal. I can tell you, based on my faith in Christ and, and, and uh, knowing that I'm a child of God, uh, I know that I am a son of God, and uh, I, I know that I'm a son of God, and I am a son of man. But Jesus is the son of God. He is the son of man. There's a big difference. So what is this likeness? I think John is saying that someday I will also be perfectly righteous. Whew, talk about not understanding how the next life's going to be compared to this one. Um, remember that day when you were perfectly righteous? You probably can't because you, you, were, you were under anesthetic. <laughs> you don't remember it. Like you didn't do anything. If you can be perfectly righteous and not do anything. Someday it will be perfectly righteous with a glorified, resurrected body. Paul wrote in Philippians that God will transform, renew this, uh, my lowly body to be like his glorious body. I think that the apostle John got his material from Psalm 17. Listen to this verse from Psalm 17, verse 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. 
When I awake, I will be satisfied with your likeness. It's an interesting phrase. I'll be satisfied with your likeness. I'm not sure if the psalmist is talking about what he's seeing there or what he's seeing in his own life at that point. I will be satisfied. I love that idea of finally being at peace, even with myself and my understanding of God. When we see him, this is revealed in Scripture as the most satisfying, beautiful thing we've ever seen. Now think about that. Because we've seen some beautiful things. The most beautiful thing we will ever see is still in the future. No matter what we've seen now. And that's going to be a permanent state. If, If you could see one beautiful thing in this world that would eternally satisfy you, that would be a real hit to the travel industry. It'd be a real hit to a lot of industries because we kind of pursue and chase around looking for something beautiful to behold with our eyes because I think we're wired this way because I think we were made to see this thing that we're going to see that is so beautiful. Have you ever wondered why the things that, uh, the other kinds of visual beauty become so enslaving to us, why they never satisfy? It's because we're made to see something so much greater. Psalm 17, I will be satisfied. Think back on those words we read today about glory and stars and heavenly beauty and a new shine glory. When we don't have the words for something exceptional, we say, now that was really something. Like we can't really say that. That was really something. That was so beautiful. How much energy and money do we spend chasing temporary glory in this world when we can know and be confident through faith in Christ that there is a glory prepared for us, that's really something. Uh, Brian Kelly. Brian Kelly is a gentleman who in the 80s and 90s worked for a fireworks company in Michigan. And he was diagnosed with a fatal illness. And uh, true story, he left specific, um, he worked, remember he worked at a fireworks company, he left specific instructions for his extended family what he wanted done with his remains. And on August 12, 1994, a large firework rocket was fired off and uh, Brian Kelly's ashes were mixed in with all the chemicals and the explosives and uh, it was fired off into the sky and that night somewhere over Lake Michigan maybe for four seconds of glory Brian Kelly shone with the stars and it was over that was it that's not our hope in Christ to, to chase and try to manufacture in some way to be noticed and, and be glorious and, and, and reach our potential and be fully sanctified and guaranteed the hope we have in the resurrection. That could be permanent. But just like the last two weeks, everything I've said this morning is based on that saving relationship with Christ. Otherwise, we're just reading someone else's mail once again. So do, do you know that you have that relationship with Christ? Is that your hope? Um, everything I've said is dependent on that. And this idea of this new energy source. We're talking about the Holy Spirit here, energized by a new life source. Do you know the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, when he considered all the things he's done in his life and what he really wants out of this life, he said this, he said, I want to know the power of his resurrection. So here's something else. Let me use discontinuity, continuity the same way. If you've placed your faith in Christ, 
and you've been indwelt by his Holy Spirit, I think there's a lot more potential for discontinuity with the way your life has ever been than you've ever realized in this life now. And, and what is the potential for change even now with that kind of power that will complete it later, but I think God intends us to be continuing growing in the Spirit and in His likeness even now. And we don't have to despair because we'll know we'll get there. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray again this morning and acknowledge there's, there's still a whole lot of deadness in our lives, in our hearts, in our world. On one hand, we do pray, come, Lord Jesus. We want to see this new heaven and this new earth. But Lord, also, we want to see and experience the power of your resurrection now. Help us to learn more and more to switch fuel sources from the flesh to the spirit of the living God, even in our everyday life now. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us. For more information, please visit brooklynrbc.ca. The link is also in our bio. On behalf of the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn, we pray you have a blessed week.